Good morning. I'm glad that you, uh, you made it in after uh, losing an hour of sleep and with uh, the snow and everything else, it's good to be able to be together uh, this morning. Uh, we do have some special guests here that I, I do want to point out. Um, we have uh, some, some folks from Crew that are uh, with, with Michigan Tech up in the UP. Um, and it seems like maybe we're, we're having a, a promotion here of crew this morning with the other announcements that, uh, with Marnie. But we're glad to have, have them here. So we, we have uh, some missionaries that our church supports, our Alex and Katie um, Humboldt, um, that are with crew up in Maine. And originally they used to be at, at Michigan Tech in, in the UP. Um, if you're not familiar with crew, it's a, a student-focused uh, ministry on college campuses, uh, that does the small group fellowships, it does evangelism training, it does discipleship, and that's a big part of what they do. One of the things that they do is um, over spring break, they, uh, they travel south, and, um, and, and over spring break they, they do ministry. Now, these guys from Michigan Tech, they traveled south, and, um, and, and they're actually going to stop for spring break in Traverse City, which I think they should have continued on south, because normally they go to like Daytona Beach, right? I mean go to Daytona Beach, and they do evangelism projects and things like that. So, so this group, um, let's led by Jared O'Connor, and actually, Jared was at, um, in college when Alex was there, and uh, he got into crew, I think, because of Alex's ministry in his life. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, pretty much. So, so that, that's cool just to see, see Alex and Katie and their influence, and then, and then for these guys to be here. But the reason that they're here um, today and then this week is they're going to be uh, doing evangelism ministry at NMC's campus. And so as you're dismissed this morning, they are going to have a, a table set up in the back. And, and I would encourage you to stop by and just to chat with them, get to know them a little bit. Um, and, and some of the things, ways that you can help them. If you happen to be a student at NMC, it would be really awesome for you to stop by and just introduce yourself and find out kind of what they're going to be doing this week on campus. Um, if you know somebody who, who goes to NMC, um, stop by if you're just interested um, in, in what their campus ministry and things like that. But certainly, be in prayer this week. They're looking to, uh, to, do, to share the gospel, to, to make some inroads there, and to, to possibly plant uh, some kind of a, a crew uh, ministry at, at the campus here at, at uh, Northwestern Michigan College. So, so that's certainly exciting. And so we want to be in prayer for that. And I guess, like I say, that, that may be south for you guys. But anyway, I know it's because they love the Lord. That's why they're here and not going to Florida. But... Uh, Thank you guys for, for being in our community and, and sharing the good news of the gospel. We appreciate that. Um, what's a special uh, privilege for me to be able to open God's word um, this morning? And um, I, I guess maybe because I don't get to do it all that much, I typically pick a topic that, that ministers to me personally, and that is certainly true uh, this morning. And so as we begin, I just ask this question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? That, that's an important question because the way that you perceive yourself impacts what you do. I mean, a fundamental question of identity, oh, I need to mention this too, if you haven't already, pull out your bulletin on the back, there's a place for you to take some notes, if you'd like to do that, um, just to follow along. But, but a fundamental truth about identity is this, you cannot consistently behave in a way that is inconsistent with how you perceive yourself. You cannot consistently behave in a way that's inconsistent with how you perceive yourself. It's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul and a lot of the epistles that he writes, he oftentimes starts out by talking about who you are in Christ, who you are as a result of the gospel, and then, you know, like maybe after his chapters 1 through 3 and then maybe 4 through 6, then he finally, the second half, he gets to, and because of that, this is what you're supposed to do. Um, Paul writes a lot like that. Being comes before doing. 
I mean, I've heard it said this way, we are human beings, not human doings, and, and I, need, I need that. Um, the issue of understanding who you are is important because it impacts your motivation behind why you do what you do. And I wish that I could say as I stand here this morning that because I believe that my identity is secure in Christ, that I am able to rest confidently in the truth that results and because of that, that I am completely motivated out of love and gratitude for Christ, that I never do stuff to try to prove myself to others and or somehow to, to feel like I'm good enough. I wish that I could say that, but honestly, I can't say that this morning because I struggle with this issue, and that's one of the reasons, again, why I wanted to speak on this this, this morning. You know, thinking about being a, a child who doesn't know their, their father and mother um, is, is significant. You know, it, it seems like um, you watch these advertisements on TV um, for like Ancestry.com. It means like there's this interest in understanding where did we come from and how does that impact us. You know, in a lot of ways that we feel like if we don't know who we are and where we've come, we, we feel lost. Um, like you really don't know who you are. And yet we all have these longings inside of us, longings that, you know, we want to be loved. We, we want to be accepted. We, we want to be valued. We want to feel like we're making a difference. And without a secure identity, you know, we work really, really hard to try to prove that, that we are worthy. I mean, this is true of all of us, isn't it? And yet, and yet what does the world tell us is the answer? What suggests to you that the world and our hearts often tell us that there is something that we have to do to be accepted? There's something that we have to do to be good enough, to, to be righteous. And so the world tells us that what we do determines who we are. It is all about our performance. And you start thinking about that, and you start to see what, what does that look like in our culture. You know, for instance, if you want to get into college, right, what does a college look like at, at? They look at your transcript, right, which is all about your performance. So if you want to gr- climb the corporate ladder, you, they look at your, your resume, right? I mean, and even with churches, um, if, if it's about religion, oftentimes we look at your good works. I mean, this is all performance-based. And how often is it, if we're not careful, that we hear that same message when we come in to churches, even churches like ours, where we hear sermons that seem to be telling us that, that we need to obey God and follow His commands, and then if we do that, then we'll be accepted. Even though we know that the gospel doesn't say that, we know that the gospel says that, that you believe in Christ, then you are a child of God, you are accepted, and then you do good works. But how often is it that we still switch that order around? And so what I want us to do this morning is to examine what the scriptures have to say about who we are in Christ. And and probably the greatest statement of our identity in Christ is that we are called children of God. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take some time and examine what that means and how that identity should impact how we live. The fact that we are called children of God. Of God. Please join with me in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, thank you for, your, for the, the opportunity that we have right now to, to spend some time in your word and to, to, to examine what it means for us to be children of God. Lord, thank you that, that that's a privilege that comes only because of Christ and for what you've done. And, and I pray, Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, speak to us this morning, help us, Lord, then to know how to respond, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 um, is where we're going to be spending our time this morning, verses 14 to 17. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. It says, Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So first of all, the question is, who are God's children? Who are God's children? Um, Are all people automatically God's children? Now, depending on who you ask, you might get different answers to that. You know, it is true that as the fact that God is our creator, we're in that sense, we are children of God. Um, but, but in John 1.12, Paul says it this way, it says, Yet to all who receive Christ, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. I mean, so John is telling us that not all people are automatically children of God. In this passage, um, if you continue on a little bit further in Romans 8.23, Paul speaks of divine adoption. In other words, there's a point in time when we are spiritual orphans, and then we are adopted. So no one is automatically born into a relationship with God. I mean, the fact that we have to receive our sonship status proves that there is a time when we were lost. Romans 8.15 here says that you received a spirit of sonship. Now, the the doctrine of of, um, adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win a father. You you don't negotiate uh, for a parent. There's nothing that a son can do to win or earn that status. He is simply received. And the Bible reserves the term children of God only for those who have received Christ, only for those who are trusting in Christ's substitutionary death as a payment for their sins. You're not children of God because you have Christian parents. You're you're not children of God because you go to church and you're religious and because you do good things. To become a child of God is to recognize that God has chosen you to be his child. And you need to respond by acknowledging that you are a spiritual orphan and say yes to God. You know, when my my girls, I have three three daughters, and when my, my girls were little, um, like right around the age of two years of age, I used to, we used to tell them this story. said, if God came to me and said that, that I could pick out any of the two little, uh, two-year-old girls in the world, and so God lined up all the two-year-old girls and then went the whole way to the moon and came back, and, and I was able to look in the face of every one of those little girls, and when I looked in your face, I said, I want you. And they always got a big smile on their face. And, and you know, but you know the reality of that? That's not quite true, is it? Because the reality of that, for physical parents, we don't get to choose our kids, do we? We get stuck with them. I mean, right? Isn't that not, is that not true? Right? We get the children that God's given to us. But that's not true of adoption. In adoption, you know, we get to choose who that your, your child is going to be. Um. If you are a Christian, it means that God chose you, and you responded 
firmly to that. Now, what I want to do is just take a minute to talk about divine adoption, and then we're going to talk about the privileges that go with this, all right? So in Paul's day, adoption was a lot more common in Roman culture than it was in Jewish culture. Adoption usually occurred because a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. In, that, in, in, in Roman culture, that was a really bad situation. He wanted his estate to go to an heir so that his family name would be carried on. So he would look, if he didn't have an heir, he would look for a son to adopt. And the moment that adoption occurred, several, several things were immediately true of this new son. First of all, his old debts and his legal obligations would be paid for. Secondly, he would get a new name and was instantly heir of all that the father had. Thirdly, his new father became liable for all of his son's actions, his debts, his crimes, and so forth. And then lastly, the new son also had new obligations. That was to honor and to be pleasing to his father. Now, in, in Romans 8.14, Christians are called sons of God. And it's interesting, in Roman culture, sonship was a status of privilege and power that was given only to the males. It was only given to males. And yet now, Paul has the boldness to apply this to all believers. So all Christians, male and female, are now heirs. I mean, this would have been a tremendously subversive thing for, for Paul to say in this masculine-only institution. And it shows us here that in Christ, the institution of empowerment through adoption was used for females as well as males without distinction. That's why further on in the book of Romans, in Romans 10, 13, Paul says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, who are children of God? Those who respond to God and trust in Christ. And, and we've talked here a little bit about divine adoption. Now, the majority of what I want to speak on the, this morning is the privileges that we have because we are children of God. And so you have some blanks there to fill in. The first one is security. Is security. Romans 8.15 says, you did not receive the spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. So we are not to fear. An employee bays out of, out of fear or of discipline or possibly even losing their job. But a child-parent relationship is not characterized by fear of losing that relationship. I mean, I could ask the question this way. Why does God love you? Why does God love you? In, in Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, the Lord answers why it was that he chose the nation of Israel. Now listen to what he says. He says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Now did you catch, did you catch the reasoning that was given here? Why did God, 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 did God choose or love Israel? which actually, if you listen to it, was actually a circular argument. God uses, he says, I set my affection upon you because I chose you, and I chose you because I love you. I mean, husbands, let me just say this. Husbands, if your wife asks you, why do you love me, how do you respond to your wife? I mean, think about that. Because if you say something like, well, honey, you know, I mean, you're, you're beautiful, and and, and you're really, really smart, and you're gifted, and, and, and you have lots of talents and abilities, and besides, you're a hard worker. If you answer like that, what have you just done? Well, what you've just done 
is by giving reasons like that is you've made them the focal point for her identity. In other words, you've caused her to focus her identity on those things to continue to be loved by you. And what happens if she begins to lose any of those things? What happens if her beauty begins to fade or her mind begins to slip? I mean, I would suggest to you that the only real answer that we can give to that, you know, why do I love my wife, is because I've chosen to. Because I've chosen to. Why does God love us? Why did he make us his children? He doesn't need us. It's because he chose to. And we don't have to fear that he's going to change his mind. We are secure. Now, and I can explain it maybe a, a little bit different way about the security that we have as children of God. When you were born, was there anything that you could do to undo the, your relationship with your, your dad? Notice, if you were kicked out of your house, would you stop being his son? And the answer to the, both of those questions is no. Why? Because you're blood-related. Is there anything that you can do to change that? No. I mean, you can try to change it legally and all kinds of stuff, but you are still blood-related. Related. But is there anything that you can do to affect your fellowship with your dad? And the answer to that is yes. You know, let's say that I go to visit my dad and my dad asks me to take out my garbage, uh, take the garbage out to the curb, and I say to my dad, you know, Dad, I'm on vacation. And I'm not taking the garbage out. You take the garbage out. Now what have I just done? I've just disrespected my dad. I haven't shown honor to my dad. Does that affect my relationship with my dad? Doesn't affect my relationship. I'm still his son. But it certainly impacts my fellowship with my dad, doesn't it? Why? Because I didn't obey. I didn't show respect. So what do I need to do? Well, I need to repent. I need to ask for forgiveness for my offense so that that's removed, so that the fellowship could be restored. But I want you to notice I am making a distinction between relationship and fellowship. Now let's say that you choose to believe in Christ and you trust in him as your rescuer from sin. Now you are a child of God. Is there anything that you can do to lose that new relationship with God? Now notice, I didn't say fellowship. I said relationship. And the answer to that is no. And why is that? It's because you have become blood-related. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says it this way. It says, For you know it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but... You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. Just as there is nothing you can do to stop being a child of your dad, if you were a child of God, there is nothing you can do to stop being a child of God. Why? Because you are blood-related. He allowed Jesus Christ to go to the cross to shed his blood so that you could be his children. You are secure. That's the first privilege of being a child of God, is security. Secondly, it's authority. Authority. You receive the spirit of sonship. Now, we have a status not as a slave, it says here in Scripture, but as a son. In a house, slaves have no authority. They can only do what they are told. But under their parents, children have authority in the house. They're not mere servants. The children of God are given authority by God over sin and over the devil. God's children have a new status conferred on them and are able to move about in the world with confidence. Why? Because we know that God is our Father and we belong to Him. There's a story that's told of um, 
they came out of Desert Storm. Um, and there were, there were two Jeeps that were doing a reconnaissance mission for a tank brigade. And so basically what was going on is there was, there was two, two or three guys in each of these two Jeeps, and they would go out like two miles ahead of the brigade, and they were scouting out to, to see the territory and what have you. So these guys are flying up over one of the dunes. They come over the top of a dune, and right there as they're coming down the dune, they stop and they are terrified because in front of them are 200 Iraqi soldiers. And the tank brigade is about two miles behind them. And they're like, oh, no, we are done. And they were terrified. But all of a sudden, what ended up happening is all the Iraqi soldiers started to lay down all their weapons. And they surrendered. And there was only like five or six guys in, in these two Jeeps. And they're like, this doesn't make any sense. And then it dawned on them. The Iraqi troops could see the sand. They could see the cloud of dust that was being stirred up from the tank brigade that was on its way. And these, these Iraqi soldiers knew that they were going to be done for if they didn't surrender. See, what's, what's going on there? They don't have the power in and of themselves, right? But they're backed up by the tank brigade. We are children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We have rights and privileges that go along with that new status. In and of ourselves, we can't do it. We can do nothing. But because we are in Christ, we have victory. As a child of God, you and I have authority. Not just over the penalty of sin, but also over the power of sin. It is possible because we are children of God to walk in new life. So, as a child of God, we have security, we have authority. Now, this next point actually kind of makes me smile and laugh a little bit because I forgot to put in your notes, um, so you're going to have to write it in on your notes. Intimacy. Isn't it like a guy to skip over intimacy? God's Word doesn't, but I forgot to put it in your notes. So if you just want to put a line there, um, call it B, whatever, I, I don't know. But anyway, intimacy. The Scripture here says in Romans 8.15b, it says, By him we cry, Abba, Father. Paul describes God as Abba. Abba is an informal Aramaic term that communicates intimacy. It, it communicates tenderness and dependence and a lack of fear or anxiety. The word we would use today possibly to communicate that might be something like daddy or papa. Um, this term is usually used by a young child who looks into the eyes of the one that he trusts completely when he needs help because he's afraid. It's a term used by a child who needs to talk to the one he knows loves him. And notice the verse says that he cries. He cries. This is a child who has deep emotional needs for his, his daddy. Paul uses this word to communicate to us the kind of relationship that we can have with God in Christ. It's a term of greatest intimacy and endearment. The essence of Christianity isn't that someday we're going to be in eternity. The essence of Christianity is that we have a relationship with the God of the universe. He is now our Heavenly Father. He's never too busy. He's never preoccupied. He's never unavailable for us to come to Him. No, he's our daddy. You know, there's this story that's told about John F. Kennedy uh, when he was president. Some of you remember that. Some of you remember some of the pictures that he always seemed to have his kids underneath his desk in the Oval Office and stuff like that. This, the story goes like this, that, that he instructed his White House staff that if his, if his children ever needed him, that they could interrupt him anytime. He was always available 
for them to come to him. Now, some important dignitary, right? Some other country wants to meet, the, meet with the president but doesn't have an appointment. Guess what? They're not seeing the president. But if his kids needed to see the president, they didn't need an appointment. They could come in anytime. Why? Because they were his kids. And that's what's true for you and me. God wants us to have an intimate relationship with him. And as his children, he has made the way possible through Jesus Christ. And really the question comes down to, are we? Are we spending time with, with our Heavenly Father? Are we growing in a, this intimate relationship with him? So we have, as children of God, we have security, we have authority, we have intimacy. Letter D on your sheet there, we have assurance. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Just as the witness to a Roman adoption had the responsibility of testifying to its validity, so the indwelling Holy Spirit is constantly present to provide inner testimony to our divine adoption. When we cry out to God, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and gives us assurance that we belong to God's family. Now, how do we know we're children of God? Well, it says there here, the Spirit testifies with our spirit. The word testify is the word from which we get the word martyr, and a martyr was an authoritative witness. The picture is of a trial and of a defendant being accused of a crime. A witness shows up and says, I was there, and the defendant was not. They are innocent. And that causes the verdict to be innocent beyond a doubt. It says here that the Holy Spirit is already testifying with our spirit. It means that we already have evidence in our lives that we are Christians. We know that we've trusted in Christ. We, we see our lives changing and growing. We already have some measure of confidence that this is who we really are. So, so when a believer exhibits the fruit of the Spirit, or, or maybe experiences conviction of sin, which is a work of the Spirit, or, or the power to serve, the Holy Spirit assures us by these evidences that we belong to Him. We can have assurance by the Spirit. What evidences do you have in your life expressed by the Spirit that give you that assurance that you're, you are a child of God? Well, this passage goes on then and says, in verse 17, it says, if we are children, then we are heirs. The next thing that we privilege that we have is inheritance. Is inheritance. You know, in ancient times, the first son was the heir. He got the largest share of the wealth, and he carried on the family name. And in that way, the family could continue to be influential and, and, and carry on their influence. But here, Paul calls all Christians, he says to all Christians, that they are all heirs of God. What Paul is saying here is that the inheritance that we are receiving is so grand and so glorious that it feels like we're the only one, that we're all alone, that we've gotten all the inheritance. It's been said, you know, that, that Bill Gates, I'm not sure if he's still the richest man in the world, but it's been said that Bill Gates, that if he saw a $100 bill on the ground, by the time he bent over to pick it up, that he would have made more than $100. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of wealth. But just imagine if Bill Gates went to a restaurant, you know, he orders his food, the, the waiter comes, brings him his bill, and he's scanning over it, and he sees that the waiter made a $20 error and not in his favor, right? It overcharged him $20. I mean, do you, do you think Bill Gates would get all upset because of that error? Somehow, I don't think so. But how often do you and I allow the injustices of this life 
to rob us of our joy and forget the future inheritance that we possess. How often are we like paupers when we are rich in Christ? In, in Romans 8.18, which is the next verse I didn't read, it says, Our present sufferings are not worth comparing for the glory that will be revealed. Right? So glory on one side and our present sufferings, and they said, you know what? Our, our glory is always going to be so much greater. It's not even worth comparing. We need to live our lives in the present with the knowledge of our future inheritance. We will live with God forever. All of our pain, our suffering, our tears will be gone. All the injustices of life will be made right. We will be made complete and live in perfect communion with God and others experiencing the abundant life for which we were created by God. That's the inheritance that we have. If we are children of God, then heirs. We need to learn to live our lives today as heirs of God. Now, letter F, the next one that you have is discipline. It says, now if we are children, then we are heirs if indeed we share in his suffering. You know, father, fathers always discipline their children. I mean, to discipline, the idea of discipline is to allow a milder form of pain in order to help a child mature away from discipline that will, will lead to far greater pain later or from behavior that will lead to far greater pain later. You know, Hebrews 12, verses 9 and 10 explains God's discipline. It says that it's always for our good. Any suffering God allows into our lives is done out of love for us to help us to grow. I mean, the reason that God allows us to experience the pain of discipline is because he does love us, because he does want what's best for us. Now, you might say, okay, discipline doesn't seem like much of a privilege, but think about the lack of discipline by a father when we need it. Hebrews 12.8 says, if you're not disciplined, and everybody goes under discipline, he says, then you're illegitimate children and not true sons. No, discipline by God shows us that we truly are loved by God what? because he cares for us. He cares enough for us to help us that we would change and to grow. So hopefully you see that even discipline of God is a privilege from him. The last one then is, faith, is family likeness. It says in verse 17 that we share in his suffering. We share in his suffering. Christians will suffer not just because we live in a fallen world, but because we're followers of Christ. As Christ suffered, so we should expect that we also will suffer. God wants to use suffering in our lives to conform us into the image of his son. And so that's why we said that this is family likeness. God wants to make us to look like Christ. And so he allows suffering into our lives for that reason. One of the privileges of being a child of God is that God is committed to making us like Christ. Ultimately, this won't be completed until we're glorified in his presence. But we can know with confidence that God will not, will not forsake this. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out until the, the day of completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. So that until the day Christ comes back, he will continue this process of making us like Christ. Now, as I conclude this message then, I, I, I want to make a comparison or a contrast between what it means to be a slave and what it means to be a son, okay? Paul mentions both of these, these different spirits. The spirit we did not receive, he says, that you, it makes you a slave against a fear, and the spirit we did receive here of sonship. And Paul's making a critical point that there are two ways that we can approach living 
as a Christian. We can approach it as a slave, or we can approach it as, as a son. It is possible to trust Jesus Christ, to become a child of God, and then to continue to go on living your life with a performance-based attitude to be accepted, which is the spirit of a slave, acting as if God's blessing is maintained by our good works. You know, in the parable of the, of the, uh, or of the prodigal son, you remember when the prodigal comes to his senses, he, he says, you know, I want to go back to my dad, and, and he hopes that he might just be re- received by his dad as the hired hand. Remember that? How often do we as professing Christians approach God that way? We think, well, if I perform poorly, that we fear that God will, will reject us. But a child of God never is afraid of being fired or rejected. Every human parent says, regardless, they are still my child. The relationship is based on unconditional love. It's not based on performance. The spirit of sonship that Paul speaks of then is, is therefore the ability of the Holy Spirit that he gives us to approach God as father instead of as boss. In our natural state, we approach him in a spirit of fear on a performance to standards basis, but the Holy Spirit wipes away that standard. The Holy Spirit then enables us to be able to approach God with a family basis as his beloved child. It is by him, the Spirit, that we can cry, Abba, Father. The difference then between a spirit of slavery and a spirit of sunset. First of all, the slave obeys under compulsion because they have to. A son obeys out of love and gratitude for the Father. The slave works under threat of pain or loss or punishment. The son experiences discipline, which is not retribution, but is loving instruction. The slave experiences insecurity. If I slip up, my master will beat me. The son experiences security. If I slip up, my father will forgive me. The slave concentrates on external behavior and compliance with the rules, whereas the son concentrates on relationship and the attitude of his heart. A slave has to work, but is never given honor, and the son is honored and invited to join in the work. So we're not saved by how we behave. We're saved by how we believe. When we enter into a relationship with God by faith, we can exclaim along with the Apostle John. In 1 John 3, 1, he says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has that hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I mean, this this passage, as we wrap this up, drives drives home how important it is for us to know that we are children of God because that changes everything. It, it, It certainly changes our motivation for why we do what we do. We serve God not to be accepted by God, but because we already are accepted by God. We, we, We seek to be pleasing to God, not because we're afraid we'll be rejected, but because we love Him and we seek to live pure lives to become like Him. And so that changes everything. And so my question this morning, first of all, is are you a child of God? Are you a child of God? Has there ever been a time in your life 
when you realize that your good was not good enough to be accepted by a holy God? Has there ever been a time in your life when you came to realize that you were not a child of God and you acknowledged your sin and your need of Jesus' death as payment for your forgiveness of your sins? I mean, God loves you. He's done everything necessary for you to become his child. He wants to adopt you into his family to be his. The question is, will you allow him to do that? Will you let him? Let me ask all of you to bow your heads and close your eyes. With every head bowed and eye closed, let me just ask this question this morning. How many of you would say that I am not sure that I am a child of God, but today I would like to be sure? Is there any who would say that this morning? I, I do not know if I am a child of God, but I would like to. If, you, if that's true, would you raise your hand? All right. I see the hand. If, if that's true of any of you, maybe some of you weren't brave enough to raise your hand. If you want to become a child of God, tell that to God. Let him know. I mean, you might say something like this, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross and taking my place and, take, and taking my sin upon himself. Tell that to God. You tell him that you realize that you can't have a relationship based on your good works and that today that you believe Jesus died for your sins. He was raised on the third day, and right now you want to trust him. You want his death to be applied to your sins so you can be forgiven. That you're no longer placing your confidence in yourself, but in Christ's death alone. And then thank him. Thank him for making him, for making you his child. With every head bowed and, and, and eye closed still, how many of you would say that you've already trusted Christ you know that you're a child of God, but that you've been living out more the identity of a slave than of a child of God with all the rights and privileges to go along with that. You've been working really, really hard to try to be good enough for God to accept you, but today you realize that a child of God in Christ is one who is already fully accepted by God. How many of you would say that that's been true of you? Raise your hands if that's true of you. If you're a believer here this morning and you've been living your life based as a slave and not fully accepted in Christ, If you are here this morning and you have been living more as a slave, just tell it to God. Acknowledge your identity. That's what we've been talking about this morning. Acknowledge your identity as a child of God. Thank God for your adoption. And ask him to help you to live out the privileges that come along with this new identity in Christ. Father, thank you for these privileges that we have as your children. Lord, I pray that, that if there's any here today, Lord, who they're not sure if they are, or, or Lord, maybe they, they are a child of God, but Lord, that they, they're continuing to, to try to do stuff motivated to try to, to, to be good enough. I pray, Father, that you would give them victory. Help them to see today, Lord, that, that you love them, that they are accepted in Christ, and that they have freedom. And help us, Lord, to learn how to live this freedom out. Thank you, Father, for, for allowing us to be you. Thank you for adopting us into your family as we surrender to Christ. And it's in his name we pray.